Hello everyone and welcome back to Nightmarish the podcast. I hope you're all doing well and if you're not feeling well I want you to know that it's all in passing and just like the good times the bad times don't last forever. I've been pretty well. Um, My chronic illness is flaring up and that makes it pretty difficult to kind of get around and do things normally. So I've just been spending a bit more time researching cases and taking it slow so that I'm gentle with myself. Um, Today's episode is on the Frankston serial killer, so an Australian case, Um, and I'm dedicating this episode to Elizabeth Stevens, Deborah Freem, Rosa Toth, Natalie Russell, and their friends and family. I also want to say at the top of this episode, the killer in this case was born a male, transitioned to female in prison around 2003, but I did see in one source that the killer doesn't identify as a female anymore, so I'm not sure about the pronouns to use and whether or not to use the male name the killer was given at birth or the female name that they chose because only one source said that they kind of reversed their transition. Um, so I'm going to try refer to them where possible by their last name because that didn't change. Um, but I will at time refer to them using he, him pronouns since at the time of the crime they identified and presented as a male. This is also the language used in all the police reports and court documents from that time. Um, and going off that source, it says that he doesn't identify as a female anymore. I hope it's appropriate. Um, and lastly, before we start, my sources for this episode are Wikipedia, Mamma Mia, news.com.au, and Murderpedia as well. Okay, so let's get into it. So the Frankston serial killer would reign terror on the area of Frankston in 1993 for a seven-week period where three women were murdered and one was attempted to be murdered um and melbourne to give you context melbourne is a really safe city to live in it's was year after year nominated as the most livable city in the world we have quite low crime rates compared to other cities of a similar size and so things like these murders just don't really happen here you do of course like you know crime does still exist but a serial killer is really like not a thing in Australia really like you know of course there are some and in these suburbs in Frankston there it's kind of like a collection of suburbs is like what they're referring to when they call the Frankston serial killer and Frankston is kind of an area that does have a reputation of being a little bit dodgy. It's a lower socioeconomic area. There's quite a few homeless people. There's people who have various um, substance dependencies. And so crime is slightly higher there than the rest of the city. But it just has that reputation of being a bit unsafe and a bit sketchy. So that's kind of the context that we're working in here. So the first victim of the Frankston serial killer was 18-year-old Elizabeth Stevens, and she had moved to Melbourne and was living in the suburb called Langwarren, and Langwarren was about 42 kilometres away from the Melbourne CBD. 
And her family was actually from Tasmania, which is the southern island state sitting at the bottom of Australia. And she had moved away from her family in 1993 in order to study, and she was living with her uncle at the time. So on June 11th of 1993, Elizabeth was making her way home from studying at the library, and she had gotten off the bus and she was walking home. And the bus stop was on her street on Patterson Avenue, so she really didn't have a long way to walk. All of a sudden, a man jumped towards her, and it was dark and raining, so Elizabeth probably couldn't have seen her attacker hiding before they jumped out, and it's also unlikely that she could have ever seen their face when they did step out in front of her. So she couldn't see them hidden, and she couldn't see them when they were face to face with her. The person then threatened her with what appeared to be a gun, and they grabbed Elizabeth and led her along Patterson Avenue, saying, shut up, or I'll blow your head off. A woman was actually passing by at this time. She was running towards her car to get in and get out of the rain, but because of the weather, she didn't actually see the pair. And keep in mind, this is June 11th, so this is in Melbourne winter, which is very cold, very drizzly, and it gets dark very early. So at this point, it would have been cold and raining and dark. So Elizabeth couldn't have seen anything, and nobody else could have seen Elizabeth and her attacker. Now, like I said before, Elizabeth actually lived on the same street that she was attacked on. So she wasn't very far from home when she was attacked. And at this time, her uncle that she lived with began to get quite concerned. She was expected to come home around 8pm, but as time kept ticking over, her uncle was more and more unsettled as to why she didn't come home yet. He started searching the nearby streets for her car at around 10pm, but when she still wasn't home at 1 in the morning, the police were contacted. But again, due to the rain and the weather, the police couldn't really start a search at that time, so they had to wait. About one hour after killing Elizabeth, the killer then arrived at their girlfriend's house. He was soaking wet from the rain. And the rain had also washed all of the blood off of his hands. The girlfriend's mother asked where he had been, and he just made up an excuse about dropping in to visit his mum, but finding out that she wasn't home. The killer then sat down, waiting for their girlfriend to return home, and enjoyed a warm bowl of soup to heat up from the cold weather outside while they had just left Elizabeth's body out in the cold and the rain. Early the next morning, a man was walking through a park and came across a partially concealed body. And this was located in Lloyd Park Reserve, which is a pretty big park. And one of its entrances actually comes off Patterson Avenue. And I think one of the most devastating things to think is that for all of those hours when Elizabeth's uncle was beside himself, worried if she was coming home and trying to look for her and contacting the police... She was only a few hundred meters away with her killer and he had just left her body behind sitting there so close to her home. When the police were contacted about the um, finding the body, they quickly discovered that the crime scene was just grisly. Elizabeth was naked from the waist up and she had been strangled, stabbed and her throat was cut. 
She also had a crisscross pattern carved into her chest. Her nose was really swollen and this suggested that she had taken a pretty brutal beating before she was before she died and her nose had been broken. Even though she was unclothed and her bra was pushed up to around her neck, there wasn't any evidence that Elizabeth had been sexually assaulted. The murder stirred up a huge amount of media attention and in turn this kind of forced a really large investigation but the police could not find any evidence at Patterson Avenue or Lloyd Park Reserve where Elizabeth was taken and where her body was discarded and of course no witnesses came forward either not even that woman who was running to her car when Elizabeth was attacked and This is pretty likely to be because of the downpour of any rain, that any evidence there could have been would have just been washed away and down the drain because, you know, even the killer's hands were washed clean of blood by the time he got to his girlfriend's house. In the police's huge investigation after Elizabeth's attack, they actually used a life-sized mannequin stationed at the bus stop where Elizabeth was last seen. And they did this in the hope that someone would drive past and they would notice the scene and something in their memory would be triggered and they would come forward with anything they'd seen the night Elizabeth was killed because they wouldn't have previously realised that it was so important. The police knocked on pretty much every single door in the area. They questioned the bus driver and the passengers that were on the bus with Elizabeth on June 11th and they checked out every single library in the area that Elizabeth might have gone to but... All of that searching was fruitless and the police just had no leads. About one month after the death of Elizabeth, on Thursday 8th of July, a 41-year-old Rosa Toth got off the train at Seaford Railway Station and headed north on her way home. Just before 6pm, Rosa walked past Seaford North Reserve and noticed a person who was just loitering near the toilet block. And keep in mind, at 6pm in winter, it probably would have been dark. And maybe there would have been some streetlights to kind of illuminate it, but it, it would have been, it wouldn't have been light. Soon after Rosa passed this person, they just attacked her from behind. Rosa was dragged into the nearby park, but she actually managed to get herself free when her attacker held a fake gun against her head. During this struggle, Rosa had clumps of her hair ripped out and she'd actually bitten the fingers of her attacker right down to the bone on several occasions. Rosa ran off and she was incredibly shaken, as anyone would be after that. She only had light physical injuries, so when she got to the main road, she hailed down a car and the driver of the vehicle drove her to her house. Rosa later said that she knew that if she didn't fight strongly and she didn't get away, that she would have been murdered. Approximately one month later, on July 12th, a farmer made a terrifying discovery in one of his paddocks at his property in Caram Downs. So I've mentioned all of these suburbs. There's now Caram Down, there's Langwarren, Frankston and Seaford, and all of them are in a pretty close radius to each other. So they're all operating in the same city council. So to put it in perspective, Caram Downs is only eight kilometres away from Langwarren where Elizabeth was killed. 
What the farmer found was the body of a 22-year-old mother, Deborah Freem, who was reported missing on July 8th, so four days earlier before her body was found. And she was reported missing on the same night that Rosa had been attacked and had escaped. Deborah lived near Cannonook Station in Seaford, so the same suburb where Rosa was attacked, and this was about four kilometres away from her body was found. She had been abducted in her car in the early evening. So what happened was Deborah had a 12-year-old, not 12 years old, a 12-day-old son, and she left him at home with a male friend who was babysitting because she needed to buy some milk as she was midway through cooking dinner, and she left at about 7 p.m. at night. As it got to 8 p.m. and she still hadn't returned, the friend who was babysitting called Deborah's boyfriend. He also called the police and he also called the local hospital to try find out her location, to learn of any possible accidents she might have been involved in if she had shown up at the hospital unconscious and injured. And honestly, gold star to him. I think making these calls is such a good decision because you never know what's happened and I think if you have a reasonable cause for concern even if this person has only been missing for one hour then I don't think you should hesitate to call people especially the authorities and I think it's really smart to call the hospital like I don't know if that's something I would have thought of but you do hear in a few cases where someone's trying to find someone who's gone missing and so they call all the hospitals to try find a Jane Doe that's turned up from an accident Anyway, so after this friend called Deborah's boyfriend, the boyfriend then came over and the two men drove around the streets trying to locate Deborah. And ultimately, they ended up going to Frankston Police Station to report her as missing. So back to July 12th, the farmer, after coming across Deborah's body, called the police. And investigators soon discovered that she'd been strangled brutally slashed and her throat had been cut in a very similar manner to Elizabeth just a month earlier, but they didn't really connect the dots yet. The crime scene investigators actually scuba dived in the Cannonook Creek to find any evidence, but again, they came up empty handed. Like in Elizabeth's case, the weather was severely, like, so strong and was really damaging to the crime scene, so no really important evidence could be collected. There was, however, one witness that came forward and recalled seeing Deborah's car, a grey Nissan Pulsar, driving erratically and flashing its high beams. Her car was later found and located by police, and it had been abandoned in a street nearby. Examining the car, the forensics team found traces of Deborah's own blood inside the car, a dent on the front bonnet, which friends and family of Deborah knew had not been there prior to her going missing. And the driver's seat had also been pushed all the way back. Before Deborah's murder, the attack on Rosa was initially considered to just be a purse snatching gone wrong. But as they investigated a little, little bit more, the police were starting to connect the dots. And they believed that the attacks on Elizabeth, Deborah and Rosa were all the work of a singular person lurking in the Frankston area. At this point, the media just went crazy and the women of Frankston locked themselves indoors at night. After dark, the streets were noticeably more quiet than normal. Police were actually very thorough in their investigation and they followed up on every single lead that they got from the public. 
there was actually a help center opened up called Operation Reassurance. And this was intended to give advice to local women as to what they should do if they find themselves to be the victim of the Frankston serial killer and how to prevent themselves from being targeted and what to do and how to protect themselves in those circumstances. Then, only two weeks later, on Friday, July 30th, this is still in 1993, Natalie Russell, a 17-year-old schoolgirl, was attacked when walking home from a day of school at John Paul College. Due to the recent murders and all of this media frenzy, There were huge amounts of speculation and warnings from the media and also from Natalie's school for young women to be vigilant and careful, such as to walk on main roads, not meet up with new people, stay inside after dark and tell someone of your whereabouts. But ignoring these warnings, Natalie, on her way back from school, took her usual shortcut to her house in Frankston North. And this was a little path that went between two golf courses, and it's actually now named Nat's Track in Natalie's memory. At 8pm, a few hours after Natalie was expected to be home from school, her, pe- her family reported her missing to the police. And shortly after, a police search that had been commenced found her body. She had been dragged from the path that she was using as a shortcut and taken through a large hole in the wire fence She'd been killed in a manner that was similar to Elizabeth and Deborah, but on this occasion, it was really clear that Natalie had put up a fight against her attacker. And because of this, investigators were actually able to find DNA evidence of the killer. This wasn't because she'd been sexually assaulted, but the DNA obtained was actually a small piece of skin found attached to Natalie's neck. And it was just attached there from dried blood, but... The police thought that the killer had probably cut themselves as they were um, attacking Natalie on the knife that she was using. And that piece of skin that got ripped off the killer stuck to Natalie and just dried there with the blood. At this point, the police were also circulating a composite sketch of the suspect from Rose's recollection of the attacker. Rosa described him as a male, around 18 to 20 years old, and from this, the police did some basic form of profiling, and they thought that he was likely unemployed, or he worked a menial job, he likely lived at home and in the Frankston area, and was probably around 18 to 24 years old. A police officer that was on patrol on the day of Natalie's attack actually came forward and said that they saw a yellow Toyota Corolla on the road near the track that Natalie had used around 3pm in the afternoon. And this was around the same time that the coroner actually had estimated that Natalie had been murdered. The police officer wrote down the registration number of the car from the little sticker that had on its windshield because the car didn't actually have any number plates to search up. Back at the police station, the detective searched up the registration number of the vehicle and it popped up as being linked to other police reports that had been filed. The first report was from a postman who saw a person sitting in the front of the car but kind of slumped over in a position as if they were doing something wrong but they didn't really want to be seen. I also read in one source that the person inside was using binoculars to kind of look outside and I guess watch people but that was only on one source and it wasn't it didn't really appear anywhere else 
From the second report, the same car had been seen in the Karim Downs area where Deborah Freem's body had been found. And the police looked at all of this evidence and took the three sightings of the vehicle as being a little bit too suspicious just to be a coincidence. So they decided to investigate a bit further into the owner of the vehicle, which led them to Denya. Detectives traced the owner and visited his residence, which was a small apartment at 186 Frankston Dandenong Road in Seaford, and they arrived on the 31st of July. While the police were in Denya's apartment, they were asking Denya where he was at the time of the murders of the three women, but while he was talking, the police actually noticed that his hands were cut and scratched in several places, and from one cut in particular, a small patch of skin was missing from his thumb, and that made the investigators remember the piece of skin that was found at Natalie's crime scene, which belonged to an unidentified individual, presumably the killer. And although Denya admitted to being in the area at the time of Deborah and Natalie's murders, he really strongly denied having any knowledge about the killings other than what had already been published in the newspaper and on the news. Denya offered pretty weak excuses as to why the Toyota had been at the scene of Natalie's murder, simply just saying that he was waiting to pick his girlfriend up from the train. Daniel also tried to explain away the scratches and the cuts by saying that he got his hands caught in the fan of a car while working under the bonnet. And it just... These excuses, yeah, sure, they could be true, but... Picking up your girlfriend from the train is a really weak excuse that, like... Yeah, your girlfriend can corroborate it, but, like... If you weren't there for that reason, then you're just going to fall apart so quickly... And also, I'm not sure what Daniel worked as at the time, I couldn't find any information on that, but unless he was a mechanic, or police could tell that his car was in disrepair, like the bonnet thing doesn't really make much sense. I don't know. I, the police were on to him, and they didn't believe the story for even a second, so they took Dinya down to the Frankston police station for further questioning. And the recording of the interrogation started at 9.20pm and Denya maintained his innocence until the early hours of the 1st of August the next day. But Denya eventually realised that the police caught him. And they realised this when the police asked Denya to provide a blood sample and a sample of hair. The police told him that a DNA test would match him to the DNA that came from the victims from the crime scenes and Denya was trying to kind of figure out what evidence the police had on him and ask questions about how long DNA testing would take whether the police had record on evidence to compare the DNA collected against something from the crime scene and it wasn't long after this that Denya suddenly turned to detective Darren O'Loughlin and said okay I killed all three of them. At this point, it was around four in the morning and Denya began to provide details of the killings that had been committed. Starting with Elizabeth, Denya told detectives that at around 7pm, Denya watched Elizabeth get off the bus and walk the short distance to her home. He was waiting nearby and he wasn't waiting for Elizabeth in particular, but he just wanted someone 
anyone to walk past so that he could kill them. He said that Elizabeth was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Denya followed Elizabeth down the street and grabbed her, saying that he had a gun and if Elizabeth tried to run, she was going to be killed. He also told detectives that this so-called gun he was using was actually just a piece of aluminium piping with a wooden handle. And this point in time, it was actually before um, the Australian government cracked down on guns, so he could have still obtained a firearm quite easily, but I guess it was just cheaper to make a fake one. And um, so long as somebody thinks that you have a gun, whether or not you actually do, is all he needed. After having confessed, Denya then went into chilling detail to tell the detectives exactly how he killed Elizabeth. And I'm not going to go into the heavy detail because it is pretty gruesome and out of respect for Elizabeth's family, it's just not details that need to be said over and over again. But the manner in which Denya described the murder was just so calm, nonchalant, as if he were just ordering a coffee or a sandwich. And he just did not have a single shred of humanity in him. And this, the detective said, just made them feel sick. Denya actually even demonstrated to the police how he pushed his thumb into Elizabeth's throat to strangle her. He reenacted stabbing motions and at one point he even turned to face the camera in the corner of the interrogation room to show how Elizabeth's body was shaking and shuddering as she took her final breaths. Denya then told detectives that he grabbed Elizabeth's body and dragged it to a nearby stormwater drain and just left it there to eventually be found. He also said that the knife that he used to kill Elizabeth was actually a homemade one and the blade of the knife was actually bent in the brutality of the murder and it had snapped off the handle. That was just how much rage was inside Denya at the time that he was killing these women. He was just angry and I think you can tell that as well when he just says, I wanted to kill someone. I didn't care who it was. I didn't care what they were doing or where they were going. But if I saw someone at the time I wanted to kill, then I would kill them. After having dumped Elizabeth's body, Daniel just fled from the scene and, as I said, returned to his girlfriend's mother's house and just sat down, watched some TV, ate some soup as if nothing had ever happened. Detectives then asked Daniel why he killed and... He simply just looked at them and coldly said, just wanted, just wanted to kill, just wanted to take a life because I felt my life had been taken many times. After this, Denya then went on to describe the events of July 8th when he attacked Rosa and then kidnapped Deborah in the same night. When detectives asked Denya what he intended to do to Rosa, He replied in a matter-of-fact way, I was just going to drag her in the park and kill her. That's all. After Rosa managed to escape, Daniel went to the nearby railway station and boarded the train to Frankston. He got off the train at Cannonook, and that was where he spotted Deborah getting out of her car to get some milk from the milk bar. Daniel said that when Deborah was in the milk bar, he walked up to her car, the grey Nissan Pulsar, and he found it unlocked. 
So he got into the back seat and closed the door behind him. Denya then crouched in the back seat so that when Deborah approached the car, she wouldn't be able to see him. And Daniel was listening to Deborah's footsteps. He said, I waited for her to start up the car so no one would hear her scream or anything. She put it in gear, then went to do a U-turn. I startled startled her just as she was doing that turn and kept going into the wall of the milk bar, which caused a dent in the bonnet. I told her, you know, shut up or I'd blow her head off and all that shit. Detectives asked Denya whether he noticed the baby car seat that was in the seat next to him, because remember, Deborah had a 12-day-old baby at home, and even though they asked this question, detectives completely knew that whether or not Denya saw the car seat and knew that Deborah was a mother, it wouldn't have made a difference to him. He was so devoid of remorse for the killings, and you know, whether or not he was taking a mother, it just, it did not make a single difference to him. And I think that the story of getting in your car and having someone sitting in the back seat is truly bone chilling. I find it, oh my God, it makes me feel sick. I like, it's the classic intro to like criminal minds or like NCIS or something like that, where the person like, fixes their rearview mirror and then it flashes to someone's eyes oh my god it terrifies me and I did read an article um which I'll touch on later but the families of the victims essentially spoke about the the terror that Denya had inflicted on the council of Frankston just everyone was in fear and one of the quotes was that every woman would check the backseat of her car when she got in Because this is just truly, you didn't know where the Frankston serial killer was going to be. Whether he was going to jump out on the side of the street and grab you, or he was already going to be sitting in your car waiting for you to get in. You know, your personal spaces weren't safe from this person who just wanted to hurt you. And I think that is what was truly terrifying, that the steps that you would normally take to protect yourself and thinking all right I've gotten off the street I'm in my car doesn't apply because you're still not safe and I think that is just truly horrifying so okay back to the story um Denya is at this point in the back of Deborah's car and he's got he's holding a gun up to her and he's directing her where to drive and he tells her to go to an area that Denya knew well and he also knew that it was quite secluded so he could murder her in peace essentially. Denya again described the murder to the detectives in disturbing detail and said she just started breathing out of her neck just like Elizabeth Stevens. I could just hear bubbling noises. When Daniel was satisfied that Deborah was dead, he dragged her body to a nearby clump of trees and just covered it with a few branches, which I'm not even sure why Daniel bothered to do this. I think he was so callous, he didn't care about murdering people and just snatching them off the street, that to suggest that he wanted to cover up what he was doing... I don't think he cared about getting caught. I think he just wanted to do what he wanted and kill people for as long as he could. And if he got caught, he got caught. He just wanted to kill. So 
Denya spent a few minutes looking around this paddock for the murder weapon and he located it and put it in his pocket. And then Denya got back into Deborah's car and drove back to town and parked it near where she lived. And this is where the car would later be found abandoned. And um, like I said before, they'd find um, that, you know, the seat was pushed all the way back and that kind of stuff. The morning after Deborah's murder, Denya actually returned to Deborah's car and stole the items that she had bought at the milk bar. And this included a carton of eggs, a carton of milk, chocolate, and a pack of cigarettes. He also stole her wallet, even though it only had a $20 note in it. But when Denya returned home, he actually poured all of the milk down the sink, he threw out all the eggs, and he burned the cartons since he believed that this could be linked to Deborah's disappearance. Because if Deborah goes dis- and goes missing, and then the police look into Denya and find that he has her wallet, and he has all of the items that she had bought from the milk bar, of course he could have bought those things on his own, he could have already had them, but with the wallet like it kind of creates that connection there. Denya then took Deborah's purse that he'd stole and he buried it in one of the golf courses that bordered the track which Natalie Russell would later walk through. And when detectives asked Denya why he killed Deborah, he simply just said, same reason why I killed Elizabeth Stevens. I just wanted to. About 12 hours after police had started questioning Denya, they then asked about the murder of Natalie Russell. And the first two murders on Elizabeth and Deborah were 100% crimes of opportunity. He just had this urge in him to kill and he acted on that and just took the first woman that he found. But on Natalie's case, Denya had planned out the murder. He knew that he was going to kill someone in a particular area. He still didn't have an idea of who exactly, but he was intending to abduct a young woman as she walked along this track and then drag her to a nearby reserve and kill her. Like I said, Denya didn't have a particular person in mind, but he did still think through his actions. So he went to this track about one day before, and he had with him a pair of pliers, and he cut three holes in the cyclone fencing on the edge of the track so that he could carry out his plan and drag this helpless woman's body through the fence and off the track. Denya then drove back to the track at around 2.30 in the afternoon and he just sat there waiting for a victim to walk through. And this would be when the postman saw someone sitting in the car acting suspiciously, either with or without binoculars. This was when he was staking out someone to go kill. I think that's just scary that you can be walking past, you know, seeing someone sitting in a car with binoculars, I'd think it's a little bit weird, but I'd be like, hmm, maybe they're bird watching or something. But there's just some human instinct that tells you this isn't right. I don't know what this person's doing, but I feel like I need to make a note of it. And that intuition just amazes me that people just sometimes know. So, Adenia's sitting in the car and when someone was going to walk through this track he intended to follow them 
and then grab them as they reached the point where he had cut the holes in the fence. Daniel was carrying his homemade knife and also a leather strap that he was using, he was intending to use to strangle whoever he was going to snatch. And Daniel waited in the car for around 20 minutes and then he noticed a girl in a school uniform in a school uniform turn the corner and walk down the bike track. Daniel said that he stayed around three meters behind Natalie at all times and then she got to the second hole that he had cut in the fence. Daniel then said, I quickly walked up behind her and stuck my left hand around her mouth and held the knife to her throat. And that's where the cut happened. And this was when Denya indicated to the cut on his thumb where the small piece of skin was missing. Denya then demonstrated how she held Natalie's head back, saying, I cut a small cut at first, and then she was bleeding. And then I stuck my fingers into her throat, grabbed her cords, and I twisted them. The detectives at this point hearing these things be said that they didn't even know what happened. They, of course, knew that these crime scenes were brutal. But that quote, when I read it, I just, my heart sank for Natalie. I think that that is horrible. And the detectives were just shocked and they were horrified. But they still managed to kind of keep their poker faces on and play down their scust at what Daniel was telling them. Daniel said that he killed Natalie just for the same reason as before. Just everything came back through my mind again. I kicked her just before I left. So you can tell that this man just hated his victims. He just wanted to kill them and hurt them. And I think that that is the most deranged and horrifying behavior when someone is so their mind is just so backwards that they just want to hurt people i yeah i just there's there's never going to be enough words to just describe how terrifying that is so daniel walked out of the crime scene out of that little track and his hands were covered in blood He quickly noticed two detectives were actually looking at the registration sticker on his car, so he quickly turned away and just walked in the other direction, leaving behind the scene. When he got home, Daniel washed his clothes, hid the murder weapon in his backyard, and then picked up his girlfriend home from work. And, you know, they just spent a quiet evening together at his his, uh, girlfriend's mother's house. You know, just, just a quiet evening. Nothing, nothing unusual happened at all. Detectives said that the only emotion that Denya ever displayed was disgust. And he only showed this disgust when talking about Natalie's murder. And he wasn't disgusted at the way that he'd treated her or the way that he'd killed her or the brutality that he inflicted upon her in her final moments. He was actually disgusted that when Natalie was terrified and pleading for her life, she offered to have sex with Denya in order to live. And to Denya, this was just so backwards. And I think it made him even angrier. And maybe that's why the attack on Natalie was 
potentially more brutal than the other women was because Natalie said, you know, take my money, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want, you can have sex with me, I don't care, just let me live. And that really angered him. Other than that, disgust though, detectives said that Danielle was proud of what he'd done to these women. He had not even a single shred of awareness that it was a bad thing to do or not that it was a bad thing to do but he didn't think it was bad I think he knew that it was a bad thing to do because when he covered up Deborah Freem's body with a few branches he was obviously trying to hide the body because he knew that objectively society doesn't think murder is good but he himself doesn't have any negative emotions connected to what he did but The confessing didn't stop there. Thankfully, there weren't any other murders, but Daniel went on to say that he had actually broken into a woman named Donna's house, and I believe that Donna was either his neighbor or his neighbor's sister or just someone who lived around him. And he actually broke in with the intention of killing her, and he was just going to kill her because he didn't like her. But Daniel realized that Donna wasn't home, and so instead he killed and dissected Donna's pet cats. Which, again, just disgusting. Daniel told detectives that he'd actually been stalking women in the Frankston area for years and years, but was only waiting for the right time. He said he was waiting for the silent alarm to trigger me off and waiting for the sign. He said that he hated women. And not just his victims in particular, it wasn't Elizabeth, Deborah and Natalie and Rosa that he hated, it was just women in general. The detectives did look into Denya's girlfriend, whose name was Sharon, but ultimately they concluded that she didn't have any idea about Denya's conduct and was innocent in all of the killings. So because he had confessed the police really had a lot of the evidence that they needed and Daniel was put on trial in December 15th 1993 and he actually pled guilty to all charges in the trial the court heard from a clinical psychologist and this psychologist told the court that Daniel had no remorse for the crimes and that he actually reveled he got intense enjoyment from telling about the murders and he got some pleasure from recounting them and Denya blamed multiple things that happened in his childhood on his murderous behavior in as a baby he actually fell off a table and hit his head and it was a joke within his family that you know whenever Denya acted up they would say oh, you know, this is just because you got, you know, you hit on, you hit your head as a baby, which of course is a joke in passing. And I think, you know, I hit my head when I was a child. Maybe I shouldn't say that considering what I'm about to say, but there is a tenuous link between head injuries and serial killers. I'm not a serial killer. You don't have to worry about me. My head injury has not made me deranged, but I don't think it's like, I don't think having a head injury causes you to be a serial killer. I think it's just an interesting thing that people have noticed that killers like Ed Gein and John Wade Gacy and others as well, I'm sure, I just can't recall, they also suffered traumatic head injuries as a child. But then, like, 
also so many children do and they don't turn into murderers. Denya also blamed the sexual abuse that he suffered at the hands of his older brother and habitual unemployment for becoming who he was, but again, the psychologist didn't buy into any of these because thousands of people in the community unfortunately are subject to these same circumstances and they don't resort to serial murder. He told the court, the psychologist did, tell the court that of all adult offenders that he had interviewed, not one of them was anywhere near the psychology of Denya. He said that he was the most dangerous kind of criminal, one who just attacks at random and in such a cruel and demeaning nature. And because of that randomness in his attacks, you know, he talks about that silent alarm that just goes off and triggers him to kill. It means that he's completely unpredictable. Like, you can't minimize those triggers in his environment because everything and anything for him is a trigger. It just makes him want to kill. And the psychologist said that Daniel was a sadist and he got this pleasure from the satisfaction that he got after killing these women. You know, think of the kick that he delivered to Natalie after she was already dead. He just wanted that elation from inflicting that violence upon them. But that feeling, that high, would disappear so quickly that he was just compelled to kill again. And these three murders occurred in really quick succession. You know, it was only in the span of, I think, six or seven weeks that three women were killed and he had already attempted to kill, well, he had attempted to kill Donna by breaking into her house, but had also attacked Rosa. So really there are five victims of this man in only about six weeks time. And that is very fast. So five days after the trial started, on the 20th of December 1993, Justice Vincent sentenced Daniel to three life terms of imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And he also received an additional eight years for the attack of um, Rosa. And of course, that is kind of like, um, like it's illustrative. It's making an example about his behavior and his conduct. And it's giving that kind of recognition to the families and to the victims themselves, to Elizabeth, Deborah, Natalie and Rosa, that this man gets three life services, three life sentences, sorry, plus eight years to compensate and to say, like, we are sorry that this happened to you. This man isn't going to get out. And the judge said, the apprehension you have caused to thousands of women in the community will be felt for a long time. For many, you are the fear that quickens their step as they walk home or causes a parent to look anxiously at a clock when a child is late. And I think that is a beautiful quote. I mean, obviously it's very sad, but I think that, you know, you're the fear that quickens their step as they walk home is so true. I think one of my biggest fears is walking down a street past someone and then just as you pass them they attack you. I used to think about this all the time when I walked home and I used to think that people were carrying around like the lids of tuna tins that you like lift and peel off because they're really sharp around the edge and like as soon as I would pass them they'd have this like tuna tin lid and like slice me with it or something. I don't know. I I guess I have a very overactive imagination but I think like this man's 
legacy from his six-week activity is just so profound that, you know, it, it's associated with Frankston now when people are really scared of, of walking home, especially women. And I think that is, unfortunately, the legacy that serial killers have for generations and generations onwards. In June of the following year, so this is 1994, Denya actually appealed his sentence and he was granted a, he was granted the opportunity to get parole after 30 years. And I mean, that is a really big step down from three life sentences without parole to then potentially being able to be free in 30 years. Um, it is still the equal longest non-parole period given to any prisoner in Australia. So, like, pretty much the maximum sentence that the judges had precedent to impose. But I still think that, like, come on. Like, this guy was sick. Like, keep him in prison. And the families of Elizabeth, Deborah, Natalie and Rosa also felt cheated by that decision. They felt that, you know, the only suitable sentence for a man like him was life imprisonment. And that for the heinous things that Denya did, you know, he should never see the light of day or even get the chance to be to be on parole. And I think I think absolutely. During Denya's time in prison, he actually began writing and he wrote what's called the Paul Denya letters, which were dated on 29th of November 2003. And it was at this time that the person born as Paul Denya began identifying as Paula Denya. So sometimes if you research this case, like for example, the Wikipedia page is under Paula Denya. Um, some others are still under Paul Denya. Some use he pronouns, some use she pronouns. So I've, I've tried to stick to Denya and he, him. But if at some point I've accidentally said Paula or she, then I apologize for like the confusion that that causes. Um, anyway, Denya claimed that the feelings of gender dysphoria were actually what led to him murdering women because he wanted to seek revenge against them. And I personally think that like my heart goes out to members of the trans community. I think that it would be terrifying to not know who you are and especially in a time such as this about 30 years ago when people just were mean like people are still mean now but I think people are more accepting but to just have that inherent fear of who you are I think is like the courage to push through that I think is absolutely admirable but Denya did not have that courage he was just a coward and I think that he was so hurt and confused by his own feelings that he became toxically jealous of women, of cis women who could openly be women. And he was so filled with internalized misogyny and internalized transphobia that this just forced his hand to kill. And in actually letter six of the collection that Denya wrote in February 24, 2004, he said, I committed these disgusting crimes not because I was ever hating womankind, but because I had never really felt that I was a male. And 
And while Daniel was in prison, he began wearing women's clothing and wore makeup in prison, which was against prison rules. And I would kind of imagine that he would have been pretty beaten up by it. I don't really think that prison is the most LGBTQIA plus friendly group. Maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me. Absolutely. I would love to be corrected, but I just feel like he would have been beaten up. Medical specialists that worked at the prison evaluated whether Daniel could receive gender affirming surgery, but they actually rejected the idea and I couldn't find out why. Um, I did study as part of my degree the laws around gender affirming surgery and they've only very recently changed to not need court approval. So I think that back in 94, oh no, sorry, this is 2004 that this happened maybe. Um, I, I just, I think it would have been really difficult legally to jump through a lot of hoops to get a gender affirming surgery allowed, especially for a prisoner. And the victim's families were actually a little bit outraged by Denya's writing about his gender dysphoria. They kind of saw it as a plea that Denya was using to get more sympathy because in some ways it made himself the victim of the situation saying, I'm so wounded, I'm so scared of who I am that I've been forced to kill these people. And it makes people feel sorry for him for not being comfortable with who he is rather than people seeing that he was just so toxic and so cowardly and scared that he took it out on helpless women and ultimately I did debate for a really long time what pronouns to use I know that I keep coming back to this but I don't respect Denya and I find her actions completely revolting but in having that discussion with myself about what pronouns to use it wasn't to do an act of service to Danya it's an act of solidarity with the transgender community in general and to try use the proper pronouns of any person and the original draft of this episode that I had written was using she her pronouns and referring to it as referring to the killer as Paula um but when I did read that Danya doesn't identify as a woman anymore and has retransitioned to present and identify as a male again, coupled with the fact that Danya was a male at the time that this was committed. That's why I feel it's appropriate to use those pronouns. But of course, again, you know, I'm a cis woman. I'm the issue of pronouns is never going to mean nearly as much to me as it will to a trans person. And so if that is your domain, I would love to be educated if I'm doing something wrong. Um, because again, my effort to refer to Daniel using the correct pronouns is not to validate them. It's not to, you know, support them. It's to support the transgender community in general and to make an effort with pronouns because I think that that's the least we can do. Anyway, that really just went off on a tangent. So, at the time of the offences, um, Paula was known as Paul, um, but as kind of he, she was writing, Paula was a female, 
Um, and I just am getting quite confused. Um, so, after Denya's... Given that Denya's sentence was appealed, he is actually eligible in parole. Given that Denya's sentence was actually appealed and he got given a parole period after 30 years, or at least the eligibility to apply for parole after 30 years, this means that this man can apply for parole in 2023, which considering it's already December, pretty much, of 2021, that makes my skin crawl. He would be aged about 45, and the families of the victims have actually started campaigns and petitions including doing news interviews and newspaper articles to make people want to keep Daniel in prison essentially and I think that that is just the best decision because he just killed who he wanted with such brutality and such callousness that I have pretty much no doubt that if he were let out again he would keep killing I don't think that someone like that could change, especially because in his police interviews, you know, he just described that need to kill as something so inherent and something so intrinsic to who he was that I just, I don't think that he wouldn't kill the, you know, from killing Donna's pet cats. I think in his childhood as well, he had killed some animals. I think that just... I think he's inherently evil and that whatever he says, even in the letter that I wrote, letter six from February 24, 2004, he writes, I committed these disgusting crimes. I don't even think he thinks that they're disgusting. I think that Denya says that because he is so clued into his public perception that he knows that the public thinks it's disgusting and knows that to manipulate the public's idea of him to acknowledge his behavior as disgusting would be to appear to have some remorse or to appear to take the first steps of accountability and I just don't think he has the capacity for that I just really don't and I hope that this man never gets parole I really do because I'm like 30 minutes away from Frankston and honestly, it really scares me. It really scares me. Um, anyway, that was the case for today. Let me know what you think. I think that this case is absolutely wild. I think it's absolutely disgusting. Those poor, poor women whose lives were just ended like that. I I can't even imagine what it's like to be their family. Um absolute absolute like respect to those family members who have kept keeping their loved one's name out there and have kept petitioning to keep Denner in prison I think it would be so much easier to keep going on in life and just try and move on but I think that you know finding this kind of purpose that they have through this horrible horrible death of a loved one is a way to keep their legacy alive and so I really yeah 
I really do love that. If I can find any resources about petitions and things for keeping Denya in prison, then I will obviously link them below. Any support to keep this man off the street, I think, is time well spent. So, yeah, let me know what you think. If you have any case suggestions, you can visit my website, which is nightmarishpodcast.wixsite.com forward slash my dash site. You can also email any suggestions to nightmarishmurderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening and tell your mum to tune in.